And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Not that many folks knew of DeRay McKesson, other than perhaps the students whose lives he touched as a teacher and an administrator in the New York and Minneapolis public schools. Until August of 2014, when he felt moved to go down and join the protests in Ferguson, Missouri, after the killing of Michael Brown. Uh, In that uh, post-Ferguson period, he became one of the nation's best-known organizers, protesters, spokespeople uh, around the issue of police-community relations, uh, and uh, one of the most visible uh, figures in what has become the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, including uh, helping to lead the Campaign Zero uh, platform to help reduce uh, uh, police shootings in minority communities. He ran a somewhat quixotic race for mayor of Baltimore uh, earlier this year uh, and is currently uh, a fellow at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago. I sat down with DeRay the other day to talk about the state of police community relations, the state of the black community uh, writ large, uh, and politics and the politics of 2016. DeRay, welcome. I uh, first want to thank you for being a fellow at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago. You're a, you're a, a great presence here, and, and we appreciate that, and thanks for, for being here. You know, everybody who comes here has a story. Some stories are better than others. Yours is a, a truly unique and inspiring story. Uh, tell, me, uh, tell me about it. Tell me about how you got to this point and what your childhood was like and that experience and how it's informed where you are today. Yeah, no, it's an honor to be here at the IOP. I remember that first uh, DM on Twitter that I got from you, which is how we, uh, which is how we met. So, uh, and and the seminars have been great to meet so many people, and they continue to get pushed in the work. It's also interesting to be here in the middle of the movement. You know, like mm-hmm. the movement is very much a still living, present thing. And uh, we just met with Hillary Clinton on Friday, and I'll be the first time I'll be talking about it really will be here at seminar tonight. So that's exciting. Um, you know, born and raised in Baltimore, like from Baltimore, both my parents are drug addicts. My father raised us. My mother left when I was three. Uh, she just came back about a year ago. And in, what were your memories of that? Uh, do you have them? Yeah, You know, in so many ways, um, I think about what it means to grow up in a community of recovery that like I saw my father uh, in NA and like uh, mentoring people and being a sponsor for so many people and going to meetings my entire childhood. So I saw so many people put their lives back together in ways that they didn't believe that they could. And that has stayed with me because I, I know the power of recovery. Like I know the power of seeing people put things together again. Um, and coming what, did your, what, what became of your mother? Yeah, so I think she spent a lot of time in this. You know, we don't have a super close relationship. I have a sister, so my sister is a year and a half older. Uh, And she remembers my mother leaving in a way that I don't. I I just know what it's like to grow up without a mother around. Uh, But me, my father, my sister are really close. Uh, So my mother's back, and we're trying to, you know, we're trying to figure out, like, what does it mean to have a relationship now that I'm 31 and, you know, she's missed a whole lot? And also trying to remember that. Addiction is a disease, right? That this is like a, that she needed help that she didn't have access to when I was 30. Did she ever overcome it? She has now. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm 31. So we've missed a lot of time together. Um, so trying to figure that out. And she actually is close to my grandparents on my father's side. So, or my grandmother on my father's side. Uh, so yeah, so she's around and uh, trying to figure out what it means to have a, a relationship with her. My sister and I are really close. So my sister has two kids uh, who are five and three. And a husband, and I just was with them uh, yesterday over the weekend, and they're great. Uh, so it's good. And we both grew up and became middle school math teachers completely crazily. So I, from Baltimore, went to Bowdoin, which is a great school in Maine. Maine yeah, amazing. I, I want to get there, but I'm just, um, I mean, you're dealing, when you, you your whole life is committed to two, basically two issues. One, the quality of public education. 
uh, and the other is this issue of violence and the relationship between police and community. Um, and so before we leave your childhood, I want to get a sense of um, what what those two things were like in the community. Obviously, drugs were a, weren't an issue. You know, uh, Americans uh, think of uh, uh, inner city Baltimore as the wire and, and all that. But how prevalent was violence? How and how aware were you growing up of the uh, kind of very uh, sometimes difficult relationship between the police and the community? Yeah, I think that Ta-Nehisi probably says it best about Baltimore is that what you uh, what was so real and what was so felt was the fear. Right. So I remember what it was like to walk home from school when we lived with my grandmother um, in one part of the city and like not walk certain places, not not walk home certain ways because it was because you felt like it was going to be dangerous or not, and not to drive certain ways like those. The fear was so present with the police. Uh, actually, I, re- I got the talk like everybody got the talk. Every black kid got the talk around like, you know, if you see the police, just be, you know, don't do anything that might make them think you are dangerous. Um, but I remember getting pulled over in 2009. So I, op- you know, I know we're, we haven't gotten there yet, but I opened up an after school center in Baltimore after college and after I taught. Um, and I left something on the, or somebody, one of our staff members had left something on the lunch table. So I like, I needed to go get it as soon as school opened. So I'm like, you know, trying to get to school early, it's like six o'clock in the morning. I get pulled over by an officer and he approaches my window uh, with his gun drawn and he's like cussing and he is like really intense and I'm you know really afraid of the principal at this point so I'm like just trying to get to school so the principal the cop is being really crazy and I'm saying to him like it's okay it's okay calm down it's okay so he we get him calmed down and he you know gets himself together I don't even get a warning I go to school pick up the thing I need to pick up and then get back um, and when that happened to you, I remember telling people, and I thought that I was like, that that never happened. I hadn't heard people talk about that happening as much. Um, I thought I was like the only person now, like, you know, since the movement, I realized that the police have been abusing their powers in large ways for a long time. Whereas I thought these were sort of like outlier events, uh, that I'd heard about before, but I just never heard about them at scale. You, uh, you talk about, uh, walking home and taking, uh, the routes that you thought would be safe. That fear was not of police. That fear was of random vi- violence on the streets. Yep. Um, so that that's also a pervasive reality in a lot of communities. We're sitting here on the south side of Chicago, and both things are a concern, both uh, violence and uh, relationship, abuse of police power and so on. Um, how do you... How do you reconcile the two? How do you, and I know you guys, you, your organization, the organization that you formed has put out a really lengthy set of proposals about how to uh, deal with this. But we've had young people uh, come to, we've had sessions on this very issue here at the Institute of Politics. Young people come and say, we ought to just disband the police. We don't need the police. Um, and I wonder sort of how, what do you do about how you reconcile the issue of violence and, and the need for security and the abuse of police power? Yeah, so when we talk about community, so these two issues, police violence and community violence, both important issues, important differently, but important nonetheless. Uh, when we think about community violence, I'm mindful that so many communities were designed to to be a certain way, right? So what does it look like when you impoverish people in a certain way, like put them in economically disadvantaged parts of cities, when you uh, stack them on top of each other in housing projects, when you make sure that they have to travel an hour one way to work, like, that that actually changes. To get to the, work. Yeah, that that changes the way that people function in space, right? That that has an impact. Uh, and then that breeds a certain type of conflict in places. And, and then we see the manifestation of that. So that's like institutional. That was intentional in cities across the country, including including cities like Chicago and cities like Baltimore. And also mindful that uh, with community violence, uh, that in the legal economy, there's a way to deal with conflict. That in the legal economy, if I disagree with you, I call your manager, I file a lawsuit, I file a complaint. Like In the illegal economy, 
which so many people have been forced into by factors beyond their control, uh, that there's only one way to deal with conflict, and that's violence. So if we don't help transition people out of the illegal economy to the legal economy at scale and in ways that make sense, like we will always have this problem that anything else will just be a band-aid. When we think about police violence, what we know to be true is that people are using, the police are using their power in ways that disproportionately disadvantage a certain segment of the country so this is about safety what does safety look like and if i ask you where you feel the most safe it's not in a room full of police it's in a room where people care about you where people love you where there's uh where there's food and shelter where there's love like that's what safety is and then the question for us becomes how do we scale you that? know that you say that and uh, but you and i might have a much different experience i mean you know, I wouldn't say where do I feel the safest in a room full of police, but I'm sure I feel differently in a room full of police than you might feel in a room full of police. Yeah, but that that's wasn't just the, that's reality. Not the question, though. But the question wasn't like it wasn't about weighing the options; it's about where do you feel the most safe, right? right? But but the 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 uh, but there is a disparity, obviously, in the way uh, different populations uh, uh, relate to the police and the way the police relate yeah. to different populations. And I should say parenthetically. Yeah, I started in life as a police reporter at the Chicago Tribune. I've covered a lot of violence, and I've seen a lot. I've seen both sides of this equation. I've seen the abuse of citizens, and I've seen heroic acts to save citizens. So I don't come at this from the notion that this is as simple as, uh, you know, I don't want to say black and white, but uh, it's a, it's much more complex than that. But, um, uh, but I, on your point that. The, the economics of, of these communities are such that you have this sort of underground economy, some of it uh, related to dr- drug trade, and that uh, propagates violence, that foments violence. That, that was intentional, though. People, it, like a system designed it to be that way is like important. To, it's not like the underground economy just like emerged on its own. It's like people, like you think about the history of redlining, you think about all these things that like forced a set of people to live a certain way, like that, that has consequences and people chose that to be the case. And what I was saying about mm-hmm. the conception of safety is that when we think about where do you feel the most safe, the question is how do we scale that for people? It's not a, the police, for some people, uh, when they think about black bodies, they think about the police as being like, that is how you make people safe. That's how you keep people safe. Like that is what safety means to so many people when they think about how to make black communities safe. Uh, what we know to be true is that that just isn't real for people. That like what would allow them to be safe and functional would be exactly what you're talking about. It would be like having a job and having a mm-hmm. house and having options like mm-hmm. that is that contributes to people's sense of safety. At best, the police are a response to trauma. Like at best, or they help solve crime, that they shouldn't be a part of the crime prevention strategy, right? Like they, we should think about crime prevention in a completely different way, about options and access, uh, not about policing or like the response to crime. You think about the one in three, one in four, depending on what study you read, people who uh, the police kill have mental health issues, right? Like, what does it look like when we built a society where when you call, if I call 911 right now saying somebody in this room is threatening to commit suicide, an officer's gonna come? That's like a wild thing. Mm-hmm. And officers like not prepared to deal with somebody in crisis like that, you know. So we have to think about what safety looks like in a completely different way and at scale. And I and I'll push and say that the amount of energy that it was put to to create these systems that disproportionately disadvantage people, like redlining, right? Like uh, like you think about public education and the history of uh, like how underfunded public school systems were for so long. Uh, then we have to put that same energy into undoing some of that mess, like the 94 crime bill. Like we have to, we have to undo that stuff with the same vigor that people did it in the first place. The, um, the issue of, um, uh, I, I don't disagree with anything you're saying. I, 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 you know, I think that, uh, um, we have to go to root causes and not just, uh, the end result of those. And, um, I also think that we asked, police and teachers to do so much more than uh, in certain ways they're prepared to do to fill to try and deal with the symptoms of something that's much uh, that's much larger but the transition you're talking about is a long-term project it's not a short-term project and so there must be uh, also a strategy you're still going to have a police force you're still going to have to to try and uh, improve those, and I assume you know. In looking at your proposals, that a lot of it goes to training, and the kind of um, sensitivities that police are 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 
raised within the culture of their own organization. So some of it's training, but one of the things about Campaign Zero, uh, which is a platform that we put out, that's important is that it is a, it's all or nothing. It is either you, we implement all of these things that will fundamentally change systems and structures, um, or there just won't be an impact. That like training alone isn't good enough. You think about Tulsa, where we saw uh, Terrence Crutcher killed by the police recently, and we saw everybody saw like the helicopter footage of of the killing. Is that in Tulsa, the use of force policy doesn't actually require that the officers deescalate. So who cares what they got trained, right? Because like the policy doesn't actually require them to to implement any deescalation. So like that would be a, a situation where like it would have required the policy, like the rules, to be such that they actually had to deescalate and a training program to be real but i'm not convinced that we can train people not to be racist right that 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 probably is like the hiring component we can actually we can train you in some strategies and stuff but i can't train out racism just not as easy as you gotta be able to recognize uh some of the the we're sophisticated enough as a society to be able in when you're testing and recruiting to root out people who have those right which isn't a training issue and trying to think about uh this notion that we can actually change systems and structures in ways that fundamentally change culture, that some of this is about the structural piece with the police, right? What does it mean that uh, we have police union contracts that automatically delete police officers' discipline files, right? It's a clause in the Or sh- in Chicago, de- uh, de- there's a 24-hour delay be- before a police officer can be questioned. Yep. In, a- in Maryland, it was 10 days mm-hmm. uh, when Freddie Gray killed. Now it's five. In Chicago, there's a clause that says the police officers' discipline files are deleted every uh, five years, right? In Cleveland, it's two years, right? So like, th- those are structural issues that we have to deal with. But then there's a cultural piece that allows officers to say that they are afraid every time they kill somebody regardless of the circumstances or uh, that doesn't require them to intervene if they see another officer doing something that is just wrong like the, some of that is culture and you think about what happened with teaching no matter where you fall in the ed reform sort of side of the equation is that before there was testing before there were these uh, alternative teacher programs before charter schools became as big as they were like what it meant to teach was just very different and what the ed reform community did whether you agree with it or not is change the systems and structures like standardized tests what did it mean when you ranked the schools when you gave schools letter grades that like changed the face of public education and i believe that we can do something similar in a way that there's more consensus on with the police so we can actually change the structures and systems in a way that changes who becomes a police officer, what accountability looks like with policing. Like, we can do that. You know, uh, I, I want to uh, take up the uh, public education and pick up your story. But before we do, just the last thing on this point. Um, you know, having been, as I said, a police reporter and having gone out and covered this, it struck me that um, we're all human beings at the end of the day. We have fears. We have families. We have concerns. Um what what's your sense of i mean police officers obviously have they're empowered in a way that others aren't to they have the they have weapons they have the ability to take lives and so but they're also living breathing human beings who have their own families and so on you talked about your own fears walking around um a a neighborhood that was a, where violence was uh, prevalent do you have some empathy for the job that police officers have to do in going into communities that are uh, violent in, or where there's a high degree of violence? Yes, yeah, so it's not about so – I have empathy for a lot of people. Um, and it's not about whether they're good officers and bad officers. This is about a culture and a system that's just broken. So what does it mean when some of the police actually contribute to the way that violence looks in community, right? Like, that's just like a different equation. And you think about what most people don't know is that not only do the police kill three people a day in 2016, but the homicide rates in most cities include the people killed by police. So like in Albuquerque, one in three people killed in Albuquerque is by a police officer. But you don't know that when you just look at the homicide rates, right? So what I'd say there is that they are actually contributing to the violence in the city. So it's not about empathy for individual officers in the same way that the the officers don't have empathy for every person that they just are sort of upset with in communities. This is about how do we deal with some of these systemic things. Um, And what I will continue to offer is that I've not seen the police show up uh, at the local level and say that there's like a real need for change that like, you know, most cities, the police are one of the most well-funded, most heavily funded departments, a lot of resources. And some of that is taking away from some of the stuff that actually would be prevention work. You think about black people specifically is that uh, 
historically disadvantaged, right? Like intentionally. And what does it mean? I, I think about Baltimore. Baltimore is a city where 40% of adults cannot functionally read. That that means that people have a very different set of options uh, in a very different set of access points about how they interact in the city. And like, if we don't deal with that, then all of that will always be dealing with like, these random things. The, um, uh, last point on this, Jamie Calvin, who you may have met, uh, is a journalist here who was the one who sued the police mm, department yeah. to get the uh, Laquan McDonald tape. And he also, for years, fought a battle which he won to get police records uh, made public so yep. that the number of complaints, civilian complaints against police are now a matter of, uh, of public record, something that probably should be the case all over the country. But what he found, and uh, he we did a a conversation like this, a podcast, was that you know eighty percent of the police officers in Chicago had few or no complaints against them, and then there were there was a ten percent, five to ten percent who had many many complaints against them. And you could the officer I think in the uh, McDonald shooting had fourteen or something of that order. Um, so there was a certain predictability to to who had a propensity for these kinds of uh, interactions. Uh, do you buy that? Is that? Do you think that's typical of communities across the country, or is it worse in some than others? I think that's probably true and representative. And think about that data, is that that is only the people who actually knew how to navigate the system and, and file a complaint, right? Right. So it's probably like far more people actually right. had these negative experiences with people. In the same way that we think that the police violence statistics around death are actually underreported. Because in America, if you get killed in America, in, uh, right now, any number you've ever read about police violence is from local media reports. If you get killed in America and a newspaper doesn't write about it, it's literally not in the data set, which is wild. So there are some cities across the country where there are, uh, there's just like no local newspaper, right? So if somebody gets killed, like you're just not in it. And you think about some towns in uh, Texas, it looks like white people are being disproportionately killed more than people of color. But we think that Latinos are just being miscoded as white because it's names. That's all people have to go off. So we think that the numbers are probably far worse, uh, in reality than they are like from what we have right now. So I would agree with that assessment that it's probably like a small number of people who are disproportionately disadvantaging uh, or like, but it's important to know that because you ought to be able to, to, to isolate and, and remove those people who are given to that kind of behavior. uh, And you could save lives that way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, what does it mean to work in a work on a team or be a part of a system where, like the people who are doing the worst work aren't actually held accountable. That that taints the entire like, right. department and the perception. And the police should stand up and talk about that. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with DeRay McKesson. DeRay, uh, you, you talked uh, compellingly about public education as being part of the solution because many of the communities that we're talking about have been so uh, dramatically underserved in that regard. Um, what was your experience in in school in uh, in Baltimore? Yes, you're, you're you're obviously a brilliant guy, and s- somewhere along the line, you got a good education. So I went to uh, I went to public school for all but one year of my uh, K twelve. There was a year in fourth grade, our house burned down, so like we lost everything, and we went to go live with my grandmother. And that year, we went. So like I think fifth grade, I probably went to like a black Catholic school in Baltimore. And then my father, you know, both my parents, um, they were young when they had, they were like tw- early 20s when they had us. And, and my father didn't go to college because he had my, they just had, just had my sister. Um, so he was like a stock boy in a, in a local convenience store. Um, and he didn't know much about how to help us K-12, but he was like, I'm just going to move outside of the city because he didn't think city, he didn't want us to go to city schools for middle school and high school, um, even though we went to city schools for elementary school. Mm-hmm. So we literally just moved to the county. Like, we we moved right across the city line just so we'd be zoned differently. Um, and that way, and the schools I went to, were they were very good. Uh, and, and that was, like, a big part of, I think, what allowed me to have, you know, to come out and go to a place like Bowdoin and, and things like that. My, my elementary school was actually very good, too, but my father took a bet by moving us, uh, and that, that was really But his. that says two things to me. One is how sad it is that uh, you can move a mile one way or the other, a few miles one way or the other, and it can change the trajectory of your life. And the second is that your father uh, made that decision for you and changed the trajectory of your life by doing it, which 
is um, important. I mean, that that this is my question. We'll get into this because I want to touch a little bit about charter schools and so on. But one of the questions I always have about charter schools is it seems like it's a self-selecting universe of kids who go to charter schools because their parents made a decision to send them there, which 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 suggests a level of involvement that is meaningful. Uh, but in any case, so you 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 did well, uh, and you went on to Bowdoin College in the middle of Maine, which is much different than. Baltimore. How was that experience? I love Bowdoin. I can't say anything bad about Bowdoin. Bowdoin was incredible. Bowdoin was the first place that I fell in love with my mind. I'll never forget reading uh, The Republic by Plato in my like, first semester. And, uh, um, you know, Socrates is leaving this. I just, all of it, I remember it, <laughs> and it was beautiful. Um, when he has to, he gets called back into the city, and that foreshadows, like, the tension between power and wisdom and, and all this stuff. So, a beautiful at Bowdoin, and then I, I did Teach for America, so I taught in East New York, Brooklyn. How, how about, just a, uh, on Bowdoin, was the composition of the student body different than the composition of the student body at your high school? Uh... Yeah, I mean, so my high school was probably fourteen hundred people. Bowdoin was seventeen hundred, so it was similar size. Yeah. Uh, and Bowdoin's commitment to diversity was just beginning to be robust again. So there were probably like twentyish you know, black people in my class, which was big then. You go back now, and it's like so much more diverse. Like the commitment's so much deeper, um, which is really important and powerful. So La Bowdoin has its work to do. Like you know, yeah. like every place, but it was a good place. And Maine was. Uh, like a different type of peaceful, you know, like we were in Brunswick, which is the largest town in the state of Maine, 20,000 people, uh, which is the smallest place I'd ever lived. Uh, but it's great. Part of that is why I went to New York after, because I was like, I gotta, I need to be around more people. It's so tiny here. Um, but yeah, but, 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 but so you were a, a distinct minority as an African-American uh, in at Bowdoin. Um, what was that? What was that like? Yeah, I think one of the one of the hard things about going to a small school, any small school, there were four hundred ish, four hundred fifty people in my class, right? So a class that small means that uh, your group might not be there anyway. Like regardless of race, gender, like the people that you're like most affiliated with just might not exist because small, small. Um, and there were people of color, like I said, there were probably like fifteen or twenty in my class. Uh, so we all got along, like we all knew each other and we're really thoughtful about building community. So we were fine as a class. I think that the, some of the older students had, a, the older black students had a much more negative experience at the college than we did. Uh, and we got there right when sort of a new president had just started and, and he was really, his he is the person who ushered in this new commitment to diversity. So we benefited from being there. I think the people before us had a much more tenuous relationship with the college. You, what made you decide to do Teach for America? So I wanted to, so in Baltimore, um, I was a community organizer when I was younger. So I worked at uh, Safe and Sound, which is, which was a com- sort of a policy. While you were in high school. While I was in high school. And then I uh, helped lead Baltimore's only youth-led grant-making organization. So it was 20 young people, 10 adults. We gave out money every year to youth-led community projects. So I, and I read for all the major funders in Baltimore for after-school programs. I was appointed by the governor to the after-school advisory board. So I did all of this work around advocacy, some of it as an organizer, like in communities, but a lot of it as sort of a young person sort of fighting for equity and justice with funding and allocating resources and I wanted to I wanted to teach like I had always uh, wanted to do something like that and I just didn't know a pathway to it I didn't major in education Um, what did you uh, major in? political theory so Plato and Nietzsche are like my two they're like my guys so my honors project was on I'm trying to get them on the podcast ah you got to it was called the philosopher king remembered Um, (laughs) they were great so so did that Um, yeah but teacher I wanted to I wanted to I wanted to teach so I got placed in uh, East New York, Brooklyn, which is like far East Brooklyn. Yes. Uh, which was great. Uh, I taught sixth grade math. And, you know, my sister, actually, we both grew up and became middle school math teachers, which is like random. Is she still teaching? She's an assistant principal in an elementary school now. In? Delaware. Uh-huh. And what was your experience? What was your perception of the public school system in, in New York? It's huge. That's like probably the, it's just like huge. And what are the implications of that? Um, I'm a, by the way, a graduate of PS40, junior high school, 104, Stuyvesant uh, High School, educated in the New York public school. So 
So now Those who have a gripe can blame the New York public school. I've, uh, I've worked in three public school districts, so taught in New York, a uh, senior leader in Baltimore, and a senior leader in Minneapolis public schools. Um, and the New York system is just so big. So, like, the implications as a teacher were like, what did that mean for, what did that mean for like, professional development? And, like, the, you know, we did a lot with the schools around us because there were so many schools that we weren't, you know, I don't think I ever did anything with a teacher from Manhattan unless we did it in Teach for America because, like, a lot of the things were geographical given just how big the city was. Um, but yeah, there's a huge school system. So we did a lot with schools around us, but we didn't do a lot with like a ton of schools from other places just because it, that's how it was designed at that point. Um, I'm sure the structures changed a little bit, but I taught, I'm middle school math, sixth graders, sixth grade is great. Best grade ever to teach. Seventh grade is puberty and deodorant, which is not exciting, <laughs> but uh, sixth grade is they still believe in magic and still like want to do great work what 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 is what needs to be done to enhance public education Mm, you know in in a lot of urban spaces it is an acknowledgement that so many of our kids uh, aren't at grade level uh, for reasons beyond their control right so you think about a group of third graders that can't read it's not a group of dumb third graders right like they didn't do that like somewhere along the way like a system and adults failed them and there's so many, I, you know, I would get kids who like didn't, couldn't really divide, right? And it's like, well, what did you, what, what happened in elementary school, right? Or like, when you go to second grade classrooms and kids don't know sight words yet, right? Like we gotta, we have to own that and have to figure out in the early grades how to make sure our kids are on grade level. And that might not be just things in classrooms, right? Like what would a radical investment in supplemental services look like in a way that like actually scales for people. So what high income parents can do that low income parents can't is that like when their kids are struggling, they can just, they can put them in a program. Yeah. They can do something that like is so high quality. And what we have done with in low income communities is that we just, people have punted on the quality piece and they just, it's like if there's any service. So like, let's just put the kid in after school, whether they're actually teaching reading or not, or like doing any math development. They're just like excited that something exists. Whereas in high income communities, the whole focus is quality. So people will pay to make sure that like the kid actually knows math and that the kid actually can teach reading. And I think that's sort of one of my gripes about a lot of after school programs, especially around literacy or like math. I hate it when some of my kids would go to math after school programs because they come back and be like, well, the big number always goes on the bottom. And you're like, the big number doesn't always go on the bottom in a fraction, right? Like, so the focus on quality, I think, is big. Uh, and the second is uh, people don't talk enough about the teacher shortage. Is a, you know I, I'm the chief human capital officer in Baltimore City Public Schools today, and I've done this work in, in Minneapolis as well. And there's a real shortage of people who want to be teachers, uh, so we don't talk about that enough. And the second thing is that the teacher prep, like the the pipeline of teacher prep programs, are not very good. So we're not having an honest conversation about teacher prep. Yeah, you know I used to travel around the world with the president, and he was you know he always remarked we, we were in Korea for example, and the president of Korea said he's being he was under siege because. Uh, parents of like second graders were irate that there weren't enough English teachers and you know that the the degree to which a national commitment to high to quality education and high educational standards was part of their gestalt you know this is this is so um, you know we, we we don't have that partly because we treat education so much as a local issue that now, what, what did you think about uh, the race to the top and some of the standards that uh, Arnie Duncan and John King have tried to implement? Because they're controversial. Yeah, I think it was the right intent. I think that they did it for the right reasons. I think that the impact on districts. One of the hard things is when the federal government infuses so much money into public school districts, like at some point it ends, right? So in Baltimore, uh, we lost a lot of position, like a lot of, we had to stop a lot of things and the race to the top money left, right? So we had a lot of money and then had a lot less money and mm-hmm. like adjusting. It's hard, that's to, actually hard to manage. Like really that. hard uh, because you get these huge funding clips, right? So we're running at a deficit. Like that's just not, that is a bad part of it. But I think the focus on standards is the right focus. Like should we tweak it? Is Common Core perfect now? No. Is it better than what was before? Yes. Like I think that that's how I believe about those things. I think the focus on SES, Supplemental Education Services, was the right Push. What about the role of unions and charter schools? Yeah, I think that unions uh, unions are important. You know, I was a union leader when I was in when I taught. Um, I represented all the teachers in my school to the teachers union. I think that 
there is something about making sure that somebody is bargaining on behalf of people so mm-hmm. they're not left behind. Uh, I think that one of the things that I've struggled with with some of the unions is is um, and I think the public doesn't always believe about the funding cliff, right? At some point, with a lot of our big urban school districts, there's going to be like a point of nowhere. Like, there's just not going to be money right now. People are like CPS is piecing it together. They're like, yeah. oh, we're gonna, but at some point, Chicago like public the cliff will just be so big there'll be nothing left to piece together. And I think that people aren't like people don't believe that and like the rubber's going to meet the road one day soon with that uh, we won't be able to afford some of the things that the unions part of are the issue for. you know and i'm very i'm look i'm a i'm a pro labor person um but there is a huge pension issue that here. keeps here yes that yeah. uh is draining resources for the retired teachers that is needed in the classroom and uh it's it's a really tough I mean, it's just math, you know, math and demogra- and, and sort of uh, the march of time. You know, you've got more and more retirees, more and more of ob- more obligations. But what about charter schools? Yeah. And uh, the last thing I'm saying that is like health insurance. Like people just like miss the cost of all this stuff, mm-hmm. you know, and, it, and I don't think public school systems have done a very good job of being transparent about like how funding works until there's a fight with the union, right? And that they should get out in front of that stuff way before there's a battle, just so people like are primed to take it in. Uh, charters, I think that the idea of charters was this notion of if we decrease constraints, it should increase innovation, which would which should lead to increased results, right? The reality of that has been mixed in so many places, but I think that's like the theory. I believe in the theory behind it. Um, the other thing is that public schools have been failing so many people that I know people who are like, we don't even know if the charter school is going to be good, but we know this school has been bad for 20 years, so we're willing to take the risk. And I think that like that tells us something about public schools, right? That like we also need to be honest about what's happening in so many of them, Um and that we should close charter schools that aren't performing well. Like, I think that that makes sense. I do worry about this idea that anybody's qualified to lead a school, right? Which in some places I have seen a proliferation of charter schools. Like that actually becomes sort of the mentality. And I don't think that works. But I do think charter schools have forced people to own the like teacher certification question and the development question. That Like there are some charter schools where the teachers don't have to be certified or don't have to have degrees. And they're knocking out of the park, right? And there are tons of schools where everybody's certified and nobody's learning, right? right. So I think that I hope that the charter school conversation opens up some more of those conversations saying that's where the work is. But I think it's a zero sum world to live in. Like the charter school, like the debt is the devil. Public schools are the only like traditional public schools are the only win. Like, I don't think that's like a fair dichotomy. I don't think this is fair to kids. And I I don't think it's fair to parents who are choosing to send their kids to charter schools. Like people are making informed decisions about this and i don't think it's fair to say that those decisions just suddenly don't matter you uh, were in minneapolis in the public school system when uh the ferguson when ferguson erupted and, and uh you you uh went down there why did you go yeah, so I was seeing Mike. I killed Mike Brown. I killed on August 9th, twenty fourteen. I was sitting on my couch on August sixteenth, uh, which is a Saturday morning, one o'clock, and I saw on CNN what was happening, and I was like, "This looks wild." And then I saw on Twitter what was happening, and I was like, "Whoa, the protesters are saying something completely different." So I was like, "I'm gonna go." I just wanted to see what's happening on my own, so I drove nine hours, ended up in St. Louis. I put a Facebook status up that said, "I'm going." If I don't know anybody in Missouri, so if you know somebody's couch I can sleep on, let me know. Uh, and that's how I started, you know, and it was important to me to see for myself. The second night I was there was the first night of the curfew. It was the first night I ever got tear gassed. And I was like, I'll do whatever I can to make sure that nobody else has to experience this because this is wild. And that was it. Like, that was why I started. And I think about the birth of the movement, you know, people confuse at this point, two years later, people confuse like the hashtag, the organization and the movement. And uh, in those early days, we were just, you know, it was hashtag Ferguson. It was like hashtag Mike Brown. And Black Lives Matter became one of the phrases that people were saying because there were people who are part of what is now the organization who came down and had these um, had like big posters and flyers and had a lot of them. So like you can see at the end of August 2014 that there are a lot more photos and stuff like that with that phrase in it. Um and then uh, when the the Garner no indictment came is when the in first New York. In, in New York is huge protests in New York and the media needed a way to talk about the movement that wasn't just like the Ferguson protests in 
another city and black lives matter became the way that people started to talk about it in the national narrative but what was so beautiful about what happened in ferguson uh, you, is you were blogging from there right you were writing tweeting, tweeting. tweeting yeah and i like wrote some pieces and i started a newsletter mm-hmm. that called the news every day but i had always had a big twitter platform is that people forget two things about ferguson in uh, the fall of 2014 one is that we were in the street for over 300 and like 50 60 days right They're like people remember it as like a weekend or like a month and it was no it was a really long time that people committed to be in struggle the second is did that you quit your job to do that i did yeah me and so many other people i'm one of many people who mm-hmm. sacrificed um the other thing is that it was illegal to stand still in august of 2014 in september 2014 right like we we marched not be not in solidarity with the civil rights movement but because we had to like we physically couldn't stand still and then there was no organization that started it there was no chapter there was not like it was people came outside and like forced this issue and we figured out how to have infrastructure without an organization. So, like, I was one of the tweeters. There were live streamers. There were um, the bail fund people, in addition to our active protests, who, like, took it on to do other roles. And, like, that was really important. And so many people contributed to that. And I feel like that has been forgotten well, part of, later. Part, part of what has emerged is a critique of you because you are a powerfully, uh, you know, you're a powerful speaker you have become sort of a fulcrum of the discussion. Um, And, you know, uh, we experienced it here because um, we invited Alicia Garza to come and speak uh, from the Black Lives Matter uh, group. And, and, And so there was like, well, who, who is the group and who is the founder of the group and who is the, and some of the critique is that you've become, sort of a beneficiary of this, that you've become a public persona as a result of this in ways that transcend transcended the movement and slighted others who were... Is that fair commentary? No, I think that this definitely one of the critiques. I think that people... Nobody founded the movement, right? Like, people in St. Louis came outside and forced this... Uh, conversation and so many people stood in solidarity with those first people that came out on August 9th and 10th and 11th. And I, you know, I didn't get there till the 16th. And so many of us stayed in solidarity and continued the pressure uh, and no one, two or three people started that. Right. And that's actually the beauty of the movement. I think that one of the confusing and unfortunate things is that the moniker that has emerged nationally is, is black lives matter. And as some as one of the people who said that very publicly, like we tweeted it back in the fall twenty fourteen, uh, it was not in it was not because we were part of any organization or there was no chapter of anything that like we were out in struggle. And it's been interesting two years later to see how people just forget everything that happened in Ferguson and for those three hundred days that that now is not what people talk about. But that there would be no movement if not for those protests and nobody no organization started those things. And I try to be mindful to say like I said to you here is that I'm just one of many people, right, who, like, did this, who helped, uh, who helped press. Uh, you know, I had a big Twitter platform then, um, and I started this newsletter that became, you know, we went from 400 subscribers to 20,000, and part of the work and part of how I see my role is to help connect people across the country, to help amplify the work of other people. Uh, it is, though, rooted in an acknowledgement that the movement is much bigger than any one organization, that the movement did not start out of an organization or or anything that has chapters, uh, but there was this beautiful spirit of unrest. One of the critiques of, of the movement is that it is powerful, but it is not directed in, in, in the sense that, you know, what is the end product of it? Uh, wh- what kind of change is it producing? Is, is that what Campaign Zero is about, an attempt to, 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 to kind of codify what needs to be done? Yes, I think, uh, you know, you think about two years ago is that people had, people thought that Ferguson had a problem. There was a problem in Ferguson. They did not think that there was a problem in America. And two years later, we've sort of gotten people to that point, which is huge. I'm also mindful that the movement is young, that what we now call the civil rights movement was a decade long, right? So the next part of the work, he is helping people understand what the solutions are in a really concrete way you know we put out there have been other platforms that have emerged recently we put out campaign zero like a year after the protests in st louis so it was like the first thing to come out at the national stage that had like a concrete set of recommendations and it is explicitly focused on 
policing and and safety. Because um, I think that this is one of the one of the platforms that I think is the strongest, definitely around this issue. You know, we met with Bernie and Hillary and President Obama and Valerie Jarrett and uh, Attorney General Loretta Lynch. It is all. It was all focused on these concrete mm-hmm. sets of recommendations, and I do think that what comes next is continuing to develop a holistic understanding about what's happening. So it is not just a matter of the police. Like I get that that it is about public education. It's about health. How do we think about health differently? About economics. It's about economics. It's about infrastructure. All of these things we'll have to address, and I think that the critical ma- we can build a critical mass to do it. We're going to take another short break, and we'll be back with Dore McKesson. You took a you you also ran for mayor of your hometown uh and uh you got a lot of uh, critical acclaim for the policy that you developed not a whole whole lot of votes 2% of the vote or something why did what happened there with what happened with the election yeah <laughs> you know in hindsight i need to write about the election i haven't written about it yet um one of the things that is that I should have done differently is just announced earlier. Like that would have, you know, it was like the longest 83 days or so of my life. Um, but not long enough to build what you needed to build, you think? Yeah, but not long enough what I needed. Yeah, so I should have I should have announced earlier. And we did some important, you know, the people that fundraise for Bernie uh, fundraise for me, and we raised more money than almost any local race in the country during the time span. We had 5,000 individual donors, more donors than anybody I ran against, all the people I ran against combined, but importantly, the third highest number of donors from Baltimore City, right? So, like, that was uh, important. I think that one of the challenges with having a big social media presence and or being so closely associated with the movement in that way is that people felt like if they didn't see it on social media, that it wasn't real. So we knocked like 20,000 doors in the last 30 days. But people felt like if I didn't tweet every time we were knocking doors, if I didn't live stream or whatever, that I was actually just like sitting at home on my couch, which wasn't the case. We were actually doing a lot. So that was really hard. Um, You think you'll run again for office? uh, Maybe. And in Baltimore, the national attention only played negatively like it wasn't a help at all in when i was knocking on people's doors but i think you know i i understand that we have to have an inside outside strategy right that like uh, we have to be organized uh, in both places that an outside strategy is not a strategy an outside only strategy is not a strategy to win uh, that we have to be as organized on the inside as we're on the outside you mentioned uh earlier that you met with uh that, that you've met with hillary clinton with the president and others bernie sanders uh, now we're in the final days of a of a campaign. You just met with Hillary Clinton again. She she was confronted by some Black Lives Matter people early in the campaign, uh, and she's had several meetings uh, with various people since. Uh, tell me about that meeting and what your conclusion was when you came out of it. Yeah, so I met with uh, Hillary before there was actually a platform around racial justice. So in that first meeting. There were about 10 of us, and, and we were pressing her on some concrete things that we wanted to see show up in the platform, and many of those things have actually shown up. In this meeting, in that first meeting, she said she'd be open to another meeting, and we finally got it all scheduled um, in some ways to like follow up on some of those first things, but it was much shorter this time. So in this last meeting, pressed her on three specific things. One, which our platform talks about the end of, uh, or sort of, it explicitly focuses on nonviolent drug offenders. So the question was like, what about everybody else? Another question was, she said that uh, in the meeting we had before, she talked about the importance of community oversight, but that doesn't actually show up in the platform anywhere. So I wanted to talk about what that looked like. And the third was about uh, training. So she wants to invest in police training, but we think that the money should go to people in communities to train the police uh, and to mental health providers that the police actually don't need any more money themselves. And with all three of those, she was spot on. So with the community oversight, she agrees with community oversight boards and had a nuanced understanding of the importance of community oversight. With police training, she acknowledged and understood that the money should go to people in communities and to professionals, uh, mental health professionals. And then with the nonviolent drug offender, she acknowledged that undoing some of the some of the um, architecture of the ninety four crime bill will actually benefit many people. Now she, you know, so you may have been among them, but there are. People uh, who have been critical of her, certainly uh, some of Bernie's supporters were for her support of the 94 crime bill. And she used a, a phrase, super predator, back then that was uh, that is, has become controversial in this uh, in, in this campaign. Have you talked to her about that whole period in the 94 crime bill? Uh, and what did she say that satisfied you that uh, 
that she 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 has moved on in her thinking. Yeah, I didn't talk to her about that because at this point, I don't know what what I don't know what she could say that she hasn't already said. She's already apologized for it. Bill Clinton has said that it was the wrong thing to do, and he's importantly acknowledged that um, that the crime bill set a model for what states would implement. That is probably the most insidious part of the crime bill. So they, there were other elements that weren't. There was a there were there were gun. Uh, assault weapon ban in there. There was a hundred thousand police for community policing. Right. So there were some really positive things in that legislation. Yeah, but it laid the foundation violence for, against women for like what we now call. Yes, like sure. This, right. So they've said the apologies for that. What I'm looking for is like how that shows up in policy and practice. Right. So in pushing her on those three things, that was my way of saying like, show me that you've actually changed your thinking. And I think the platform shows that she has. That there's that she's gonna undo the those evolution things. In her thinking. Yeah, now we're just trying to see. Like, now we want to see that in administration, right? Like, what does it look like? Will you have a special assistant for criminal justice reform, right? That would that would continue to show us that there will be like a different type of commitment to this work, and I think that's really important. Did you see enough to uh, to be able to make an affirmative endorsement? Yeah, I you know, <laughs> uh, I'll be voting for Hillary. Mm-hmm. And what is the case you're making? You have a following of of young people. Of uh, in the minority community and and not in the minority community, one of the concerns is a lack of enthusiasm. You saw a lot of these young people voting for Bernie Sanders uh, in the primary. What what's your argument to them as to why it is a meaningful vote to vote for Hillary Clinton? Yeah, so just like uh, Oprah said recently, you don't have to love her, right? That you're not going to dinner with her every night. Uh, but the other thing is that voting is a way to build power, and we build power in many ways. That we build it in the streets, we build it uh, in boardrooms and commissions, we build it in elected office, we also build it at the ballot. Uh, and Hillary cannot win and cannot govern without black people. So if we can figure out how to manage the power of us collectively at the ballot, we can push that administration to do all of the things that are right for um, for her to do, especially by our community. And the second thing is that in the details, she's actually shown up. So the racial justice platform is not perfect, but it is really strong. It should include an end to the death penalty, right? Like she should support a uh, $15 minimum wage at the national level and not just at the state level. So there are some things that we'll continue pushing on, but the foundation is here and it's strong and we should continue to make sure we build on it. Um, and I think that we can do it. I think that in the first hundred days, you know, Brittany, Brittany Packnett was in the meeting uh, that we just had with Secretary Clinton. Um, and asked her about the first 100 days. And I think that it would be important for Hillary to roll out a, a criminal reform, a criminal justice reform package that we can all stand behind that is like really aggressive and, and really so robust. Strange. She ought to be able to find some allies, too, because this is one issue on which conservatives, uh, many conservatives are, are, are at least um, uh, somewhat allies because of their suspicion about overweening authority and so on. But you see like the Koch brothers and others working on yeah. this particular issue. I so. think that with Hillary, there is a, when I talk to most people, there's a sincerity issue that people have with her that she will do and say anything to get elected is like how people perceive her to be. Uh, and again, like I'm trying to figure out like where does it show up in the details? So like she could have released a platform that was sort of wishy-washy and really weak around racial justice. And Undoubtedly, the movement, the protests, like coalitions of people pushed her to be uh, much more aggressive on it than anybody thought she'd be. There's a $125 billion economic investment in low-income communities. And, and like, uh, is that enough? No. Is it a beginning? Yes. Is it an entrance? Yes. Uh, Clyburn's 10, 20, 30 plan. Like, so she's made some commitments that I think are actually strong anchor commitments that we need to continue pushing on. What and your your sense of your interaction with her was that she she is sincere about these things. Yeah, and my sense, too, is that she's done the homework and understands them at a deep level, that she is not just leaning on the policy people to, like, whisper in her ear, uh, that she she's actually offering these answers as her answers. And I think that's important. And again, like, it showed up in the platform. The question is, how does it show up in the administration? And that is for us to continue pushing her on. What difference would it make to uh, the, the, the folks uh, who you've been advocating for uh, – if Donald Trump were to win rather than Hillary Clinton. Yeah, so I think that there's some people who believe that Trump would usher in what I keep calling a productive apocalypse, that uh, that in a Trump presidency, 
so much would happen that would be bad that it would force things to come to the surface and we'd finally have to confront all of these tough issues. And I think that that is a dangerous notion. I think that we've seen that the system has never come to a grinding halt, but what it has done is grind certain people into ashes. And I think that'll happen with black and brown people if Trump is president. I think I think there's a lot at stake. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, you've worked in government, is that it's the stuff that people don't see that actually has such a profound impact on people's day-to-day lives, right? It's like how an administration decides to operationalize. It's stuff that doesn't need the consent of Senate or, or Congress or anybody. Like who you who gets appointed for these 17-year terms? What does it mean that he might appoint four more a Supreme Court justice? It's like that is just, like the impact of that on black and brown people would be so treacherous uh, that I think we can't afford that. Duray, you're not only uh, a black man, but you're a gay man, and you've spoken powerfully uh, to this. Uh, Before we go, I I wanted to ask you about that, because um, homophobia has been uh, really virulent in the the black community in the past. Um, You know, I I experienced that over the years working for African-American candidates who were progressives on 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 this issue and the back backlash that they felt how how have you been received in the community and uh, and is there an evolution there yeah so i think homophobia is an issue in all communities i don't think it is you know particularly more intense in in black communities um there are some people who you know i think about i got arrested in baton rouge i was in jail for 17 hours i got out got on twitter and there were people who were like i don't rock with him because he's gay right like and and that is some people feel like that and i i can't do anything about those people what i think the movement has done that is so important is that it has opened up a public conversation about identity so we're talking about sexuality and identity in complex ways in public in ways that we've not done before and i know that it'll take us keep talking it'll take continued conversation to push people in their thinking about it i also know some people who uh, supported me before they knew i was gay and, and this forced them to sort of grapple with how their homophobia was showing up and like people have a lot of work to do and that doesn't happen overnight but it's important work for people to do and we should build a world where people get to show up in the fullness of who they are so it's important that we're talking about the trans community in public and transphobia it's important that we're talking about all the nuances of uh of identity and that black women we're talking about uh, the role that black women have always played in, in liberation work and whether they have been recognized or not historically that that is happening now in these moments and that's important was this an issue in your campaign at all mm, it was like a subtext in some communities uh, it wasn't like as it wasn't it didn't manifest overtly but it did show up in uh, in some in some small ways, and I think that some of the people that I'm closest to, uh, people will say things to them, even if they don't say things to me. Uh, and I'm around like a, some amazing people. So I think about Netta, who I'm who I'm always with, and, and Sam and Brittany, some of the people I'm, I'm closest to in the movement space. Um, and we all push each other about how we think about identity, how we talk about it in public, knowing uh, that the only way that people sort of grow is when they're exposed to these conversations. And I say all the time that we aren't born woke something wakes us up and for so many people it was a tweet it was a facebook post it was seeing somebody on tv uh, and that's important you uh uh you you've gone back to baltimore uh not just to run but you're now working in the public schools uh there again what's next for you yeah, I don't know. I'm, you know, I'm the interim chief of human capital uh, for the school system. I believe in the superintendent. I believe in kids, which is why I came back. I believe in systems and structures. That I'm mindful that systems uh, break in pieces, right? The, and part of our work as organizers to think about like what are the pieces that we put pressure on that will have the type of impact at scale that we think will be really important. Which is why I, I believe in systems. That's why I work in one again today. Um, I don't know what comes next. Will be organizing back back to organizing at the national level. Like, what does it mean to build a critical mass? of people who uh, know what to do and have the skills to do it, that we built a critical mass of people who understand there's a problem. How do we mobilize those people? That the civil rights movement was about building a new class of leaders who would lead everybody. In this moment, we're saying, let's build a critical mass of people in general who can lead in their communities. They can lead at the local state and the national level. And I think that we can do that. What would it look like if we said that we'll train 100,000 people a month to have the capacity to do this work and to put forth and to implement the solutions? I think the people are there. We just are building the infrastructure on the back end. Well, this uh, Institute of Politics is committed to the notion of getting young people to turn into uh, these problems and into the public space and not avert their eyes and walk 
away from it, and you're a, a great role model uh, for that. And I, I, I appreciate that, and I appreciate you being here. Cool, thank you. It's good to be here. A good conversation. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.